back again this week. Rick Wagner getting it right here on KNZZ, KGLN, and some other places, Internet, uh, podcasting, um, signal fires, many different ways. We're glad that you're here. Once again, the ship's at sea. If you're listening in, we welcome you as well. <laughs> and so another quite a week in what used to be the United States of America. Well, it still says that on the money, but I'm not so sure that... Uh, I'm not sure that's the case anymore, but I hope you had a good week and that uh, we have a little springtime in the Rockies where I'm at and wherever you're at. I hope the weather's decent, too. Uh, this global warming, of course, my golly, it's just we just got a pretty limited amount of time on this planet. Actually, looking back, some of the predictions like from, you know, the early 2000s, we should be gone by now. I mean, the planet would just be swimming in ocean and we should just be, I don't know, floating along, maybe in a, you know, in some life jacket or something. So uh, their predictions haven't been particularly good. But then I always ask the same question about that, don't I? How many times you'll be wrong about the weather before you're wrong about the climate? I never seem to get an answer on that. Anyway, so I wanted to bring something up this week since we... Oof, busy, busy week out there. And, of course, we had the big Durham report that got released that, I say big, only in a couple of locations, rejected as being a bunch of nonsense and... Uh, Politically motivated, with like Durham is politically motivated. I don't think I don't think particularly is at all. At various other news organizations, MSNBC, CNN, uh, oh, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, uh, Los Angeles Times occasionally can even spell things correctly, although not very often, by the way, and other places. But we all know what it was. It was a uh, indictment of the federal agencies and the justice system. And kind of an exoneration of uh, President Trump and what we've been saying for a long time. It's just, uh, it's just the word doesn't get out very well. But anyway, along that vein, I had been reading an article that I thought really highlighted what's going on in some of these federal agencies. And just only a little microcosm of it. And this was an article from the National Review this last week. And it really caught my attention. It's about, because I remembered this hearing uh, when the, this uh, person was nominated to be the uh, one of the U.S. attorneys, which is, oversees the office in a either a whole state or part of a, a very populous state for all the federal prosecutions within their district. So it's a very important job, the United States, the United States attorney. And this was this Rachel Rollins, and she was narrowly confirmed uh, in the first part of the Biden administration, only because even when the things were that cl- that close and the Democrats had you know a pretty good pull in there, that it required Kamala Harris to come in and vote to confirm her. So it gives you some idea of how tight that was. Anyway, she's going to have to resign this week. And so I read this uh, article the National Review had put out there about why and what the heck was going on. And I thought or felt that it was really emblematic of what was going on in the federal government in a lot of places. We, that we see with the Durham report and what's going on in the Jim Jordan's committee looking at the weaponization of the federal government and the uh, federal law enforcement uh, sort of regime up there. Anyway, the reason she is, <laughs> there were two different government offices that were actually probing into her. These were also other government offices. Inspector Gen- Office of the Special Counsel, which is sort of like an inspector general that apparently she had leaked non-public Department of Justice information to reporter in an effort to influence a local district attorney race and then was not truthful under oath about it. 
And it was behavior, and this is quoting from the article, the Office of the Special Counsel termed, quote, one of the most egregious hacked act, Hatch Act violations that the Office of Special Counsel has investigated. It started originally because she de- decided to go to a fundraiser from the Democrat National Convi- uh, Committee with Jill Biden. They're not supposed to do that. Remember, that's the whole Hatch Act thing. You're not supposed to be a, a, a government employee, a federal government employee, and be openly partisan. <laughs> I know, that makes you laugh a little bit, doesn't it? But nevertheless, that's the theory. Anyway, on top of which is the report found that she was trying to influence the 2022 Suffolk County District Attorney election. She was the former Suffolk County District Attorney, gives you some idea how we're going things there, uh, prior to her appointment. And she had a preferred candidate there. And she actively supported him and acted as a de facto campaign advisor. Another thing they're not supposed to be doing. Apparently on multiple occasions during the campaign, uh, her preferred candidate suggested that Rollins' office might announce an investigation into his rival, who was the incumbent. That this guy wrote to Rollins saying that opening the probe into his opponent would be, quote, the best thing I can have happen at this moment, close quote. Minutes later, apparently, Rollins responded, understood, keep fighting and campaigning, I'm working on something. Bearing in mind, this is a U.S. attorney who's not supposed to be partisan at all. This is a district attorney's race, a partisan district attorney's race in Suffolk County. Over the next several weeks, according to uh, Reeks, <laughs> over the next several weeks, according to this article, Rollins made three different attempts to surreptitiously disclose that the Department of Justice might investigate the other candidate for potential misconduct. It was said in the report, quote, the evidence clearly establishes that she did so for the purpose of harming the other candidate's campaign. And when her candidate didn't win... She apparently was infuriated, I think is where they use here. And she apparently said, he will regret the day he did this to you. Uh, then uh, three days later, uh, even though the, the guy had defeated this her candidate in the primary, there was still a general election. This Rollins sent a Boston Herald reporter pictures of a memorandum recusing her office from an investigation of the other candidate. In other words, you show there's an you, you try and pretend there's an investigation or put that out there by saying, Oh, but we're recused from it. I mean, come on. It's just this whole thing. It's just shocking to me. And then on this Jill Biden thing that she went to the uh, this fundraising event, that she attended the event while on duty in her official capacity and using a government vehicle. Apparently she had been told repeatedly prior to the event not to attend, but she refused to heed the warnings. Uh and then when they were doing the investigation, I think this is the Office of the Inspector General, said that she testified falsely under oath during her OIG interview when she denied that she was the federal law enforcement source who provided non-public, sensitive Department of Justice information to the Herald Reporter. Uh, and I guess when she was in, in, according to the article here in the National Review, when she was interviewed about this, she said that the staff was a problem and that... Uh, OIG said uh, that efforts to blame her staff for her own ethics failures deeply disturbing. (laughs) So, and then the last thing I got this, she was previously, as we said, the Suffolk County District Attorney. She continued to accept political contributions to her DA campaign account after she was already sworn in as a U.S. Attorney. So, I thought that was, that's a terrible article. And I'm just quoting the National Review, 
But if this is correct, and as I said, the National Review, this article looks well-researched, but if this is correct, this is this is what's going on, at least in some places. And it just dovetails with what we're finding going on in Washington. I mean, I know people say this a lot, where you think that I thought it was bad, that's even worse than I thought. I mean, I really feel like I was pretty jaded and wasn't going to be surprised by too many things. But I read something like this. This is this ongoing uh, noblesse, you know, this idea that somehow, as I keep saying, these people get these positions, they're like French noblemen, or noblewomen in this case, I guess, French nobles, that they're above everything and that they do as they darn well please. And if you cross them, you're going to be punished. And they're going to use their position, such as it is, to punish you. And I'm not naive enough to think this has never happened in the past in both parties and in both things, but I've never seen it so widespread and so blatant as it is now. I've never seen it where nothing happens. Now, she was forced to resign after all of this, but apparently it doesn't look like there's going to be any follow-through through the Department of Justice for Merrick Garland. I, you know, it's 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 surprising. I know we shouldn't be surprised, but it's something to remember about what we have to keep pushing forward and why this mess in Washington and in the federal government's got to get cleaned up. That's right, everybody. We're back. And uh, for those of you that did not hear the bumper when you're listening to the podcast, I played the uh, intro music to the old Mighty Mouse cartoon because it just felt right. And uh, it also reaffirms the idea that people have about the show is uh, that boy just ain't right. There's... <laughs> Ah, Mighty Mouse. That sort of uh, describes, well, it doesn't really describe anybody in our government anymore because they're not mighty. They're a little mousy, but they're not mighty. We could use we could use Mighty Mouse on <laughs> the Republican side right now. I hope I did not go on too long in that first segment about the just ridiculous breach of just everything we would think was correct about someone giving the fairly awesome responsibility, I might add, of a prosecutor. Because having that power, and having been one, I can tell you there's a lot of power, because the purpose of it is to decide what to prosecute, what not to prosecute, what you believe you can prove, what degree of leniency you want to exercise, what degree of hard-fisted determination you want to have. Uh, It to do it correctly is a very difficult job. We don't have a lot of people to do it very well, but we have a lot of people to do it okay. And to see someone in a job like I used to have, a little more important as a U.S. attorney, you know, the U.S. attorney, not an assistant, to see that person just completely ignore just regular norms of a, of a public official, much less someone with prosecutorial power, and then misuse it the way that, that they were using it to influence another election, and just a little bit much for me, I guess. But I wanted to bring that out to show you the almost disregard, and maybe even more than disregard, that some of these people that are in power now have for what we think are just norms, just the way a reasonable, not even a particularly good, but just a reasonable government should be conducted. And... You know, ever so often you need a specific emblematic situation, as I'd said before, and that certainly was one. The other thing that I had, and I finally got it, I kind of got it together here, because I'd wanted to talk about this, and 
This is something that everybody talked to death several months ago, but I wanted to wait until we had some really good analysis and the charm of distance, as it were, to go back over it. And that's this idea about what happened to the red wave in November. And, of course, right after that happened, we had a million chattering heads on the Karl Roves of the world came floundering out from under rocks everywhere, you know, to explain why everything they'd said two days before was not correct. There was just a lot more to it. I mean, even then, if you looked at it, you go, this is peculiar in many ways. And so I waited until some people had done some real good statistical analysis and examined some things, then kind of put it together because I wanted to talk about it. You know, I mean, it certainly was a shock and pretty puzzling. You know, all these commentators out there, the pundits, pollsters, handicappers, whatever you want to call them, had expected a, a pretty strong Republican showing in that election. Now, they thought the gains might be anywhere from 20 to up to 40 House seats. I heard people who I, who I did think knew what they were talking about say that. And even small gains in the Senate and in some governorships. Now, remember, the Republicans were defending the majority of the seats that were up for offices, 21 of the 35 Senate seats and 20 of the 36 governorships that were up were Republican seats that they were having to defend. That's always a big problem. But they felt like this wave was going to overcome the fact that they were having to defend a lot more seats, some of them in relatively vulnerable areas. That's going to be turned around, by the way, in 2024. The Democrats are going to have a lot more vulnerable seats up than Republicans. Considering how Republicans have been running elections lately, I'm not so sure that makes a difference, but it should. Okay. You know, the big question, if you, if you go back and look at everything, was how big was it going to be? Some people were saying that, you know, it was going to be as much as the 20s, you know, the big chain where the House just turned itself upside down in the 1920s. When uh, the red wave came ashore on Election Day, it was kind of just a... Just a little trickle of a stream, you know, and they, so everybody was just, ah, what the heck happened? And everybody thought, well, maybe public opinion turned differently, and all these guys had this same, you know, oh, well, people heard this, and they, but you know, now that we look back on it and go through a lot of different information, exit polling, regular polling, and stuff, and I'm not big on polling, as you know, I, I don't believe most of it, but you put enough of it together, you can get kind of an idea, particularly when you're looking backward, because, you know, hindsight is, of course, 2020. It still should have been a pretty good Republican year when you look at the things that happened even just before the election. It just The red wave never formed. It, it was not a sequence of widespread swings in public opinion. You know, there wasn't a bunch of that public opinion that, that just changed overnight, right? There didn't become some big party fight in the Republican side that split people. That, that didn't happen right at the end. But what did happen was the Democrats went in and specifically targeted a few key races, and we can see them now. And we already know a couple of them, and if we look back and think about it, what they were trying to do is is conduct sort of like a seawall out there, you know, against this wave, trying to divide it up, to break it up in different places so that it didn't have the force behind it. In other words, to break its momentum. And they were successful. There were about eight states out there, and I'm looking at my notes here. Yeah, it was about eight states uh, that had really tight races, and they poured money and time into those, thinking that if they could use those as sort of a, a defensive move, that they could sort of break up this red wave, right? That, that, you know, once again, if you look back, well, look back at the 2020 election, how few votes were involved in Trump's defeat. 
Now, we don't know how many of them were exactly legitimate, but still, it's like 90,000 votes across the country. Well, they saw that and they realized if we can pour a lot of money and a lot of changes in voting and things like that into a few key areas where things are tight, we can break this red wave up and make it not really happen or certainly not happen to any extent. They were very smart about that. You have to give them their credit. One of the states, of course, as we know, was Pennsylvania. Another state was down in Georgia. And we had, you know, candidates that weren't super strong in those two elections. I liked Herschel Walker and I, I liked Dr. Oz, but they, they had some baggage they brought to it. But in a normal time, I think they would have won. But they were targeted and a lot of money and a lot of time went into them specifically to say, okay, we're going to use these as ways to slow down the red wave to make people think that there's no point that they're just it's just not going to happen for them, and they were successful. Uh, and how did they do that? So if if you go back through it, it's it's things that we sort of know, but it's interesting to look at it. And, and the biggest thing, of course, easy mail-in voting provisions. Now that's just not that it's easy to vote by mail, but it's also this ability to do ballot harvesting and go out and get people to turn their votes in, give them to you so you can go turn them in, or whatever you do with the votes, but that's a separate question. Also, this real-time voter analysis they do, that we've got to get the Republicans to start doing, where they tell day by day who's returned ballots. And if they haven't returned ballots, and it looks like they're probably in a Democrat area or they voted Democrat in the past, they go out and make sure they get those ballots. That's all part of the mail-in ballot thing, because... They, they can track it day by day. And that's what they did. And of course, they spent massively in a few different races that they knew were tight. I mean, that's not a surprise, but when you look at the money, it was, it was pretty impressive. And it sort of neutralized what was going on in that, in those campaigns. And the other thing that made it possible was the fact that the GOP didn't seem to be able to do anything about it. They'd spread themselves pretty thin all over the place. We did have a couple of candidates that weren't super, super great. Uh, we may have liked them personally, but their campaigns were a little on the weak side. New Hampshire Senate race for one. Um, the, that Senate race in Arizona was, should have been tighter than it was. I'm not exactly sure what happened there. They're still trying to figure that out, obviously. But the governor's race is one thing, but the Senate race just sort of right at the end just kind of went too many different directions and it wasn't successful. But what happened was that there wasn't a change in people's voting ideas. What they, what they find when a lot of these people have gone back through and talked to folks after they voted. And, of course, we never know exactly what they voted. Like, I think there are lots of people that vote for Trump that are on the left or not on the left, but, you know, we're Democrats that act like they didn't. But is that there wasn't a big change. People were just as upset about what was going on as they as they had been two or three months before. It's just they managed to engineer enough change, small changes in just a few places, to be able to break the whole thing up. It's very interesting, and it's something that you would like to see Republicans learn from. It's about fighting smart and hitting them where they ain't, as uh, some boxers have said in the past. can't remember who said it, but it's very true. And just making sure that you're able to take a few votes in just the right places. Now, of course, some of this is an enormous amount of spending, and we just don't seem to have the deep pockets 
of people that are really willing to just throw a bunch of money in and say, do what you want to make this thing win. And, of course, Zuckerberg and people like that dumped a bunch of money into things again. I mean, him not as much, but others. And these non-governmental organizations, you see the acronym all the time now if you're reading NGOs, that went in and essentially took over some of the voting jobs of the public officials. And we're, we're allowed to do so in sort of bizarre ways that no one ever thought would happen. Ended up collecting votes, getting the votes out, bringing them in in places with ballot harvesting. And it proved to be effective. we got to counter that. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging around. I appreciate it. We are still here, Kansas and KGLN, and podcasting and the Internet and a few things. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I wanted to bring up, too, that if you want to listen to the Victor Davis Hanson podcast, which he does, I think he has three of them a week, you can go to our website and listen to them right there. Uh, and our website is therickwagnershow.com. Or you can get to a politicalviking.com, which is our nom de plume there from the, uh, on Facebook and a few other places. So you can go there and just click on the podcast over on the left hand side. I think it's about the third or fourth thing down. And you can listen to it right there if you're interested in what uh, BDH has to say. And we try and put up a lot of his, uh, columns as well because they're, uh, they're really good. That's why he had a great one on, uh, the, uh, the sort of the Jacobite way that uh, the left is uh, conducting itself and about how things had happened in uh, the French Revolution that tend to be the same sorts of phases that all of these wildly progressive or you don't even have to be progressive. I don't know what you call them because we call them progressive now, but they're just tilts towards uh, autocracy and tyranny or tyranny rather uh, using whatever particular uh, buzzword philosophy of the day, but they all tend towards the same thing. The crushing of the human spirit, the domination of many by a few, and a lackluster approach to keeping people free and providing really the necessities of life, or as the Greeks just call it, the, the things of life. Uh, they just, they are not able to do that. But they keep popping up again and again, and they usually get way out ahead of themselves and fall on their faces over time. Now, how much time that takes depends. French Revolution, from 789 to 1800 or so, uh, took a little while, but it was some pretty bad stuff in there before they finally choked themselves to death. Soviet Union managed to last, you know, from uh, 1917 to really, what, 1989 for all intents and purposes. I mean, it was later than that, uh, but... By then, things were starting to go pretty downhill for them. And mainly that was, of course, economic because they couldn't maintain an economy. They really just lived off the captive nations they had in Eastern Europe in many ways. And the rest of it, they were spending on an enormous military budget trying to keep up with us that they just flat couldn't afford. If we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves in that situation on our side of the ball if we don't get our head in the game here pretty soon. Uh, you can certainly listen to that. I mean, I thought that was a great uh, article that he wrote. I think I have it posted in there. But uh, if you want to listen to his podcast, you can do that. The other thing I thought we'd talk about here is uh, the decline of the American city. I've been reading some things about that that are pretty interesting. I mean, we see it when we watch television and the news and so forth. The crime, the escalating cost. There's something kind of crazy about paying a lot more money to live in a place that is a lot less safe than it used to be. 
that is just the sort of thing that eventually even the dumbest people wake up and say, hey, this ain't right. Yeah, that's right. They they finally figure it out. Takes them a while, but uh, hopefully they will. And, of course, what we're seeing in New York, for instance, New York City, is as they have all these migrants coming in, unauthorized migrants, we could start calling that unauthorized. That might be a better way to do it. Uh, I don't undocumented. Eh. Unauthorized is just is a is a smoother way of saying illegal. But anyway, they're all over New York now, and it isn't just because the governor of Texas and DeSantis is all sending them all up there and being mean to them. No sorry, Bob. Those Southerners aren't doing it just to upset them. Them Yankees up there in New York. What's happening now is people are just turning up there on their own, and the city, of course, can't handle it because they can't handle anything. So even the slightest bit of pressure is too much for them in terms of their budget and their ability to house these people. So they're sending them out to the suburbs around New York. And the people in the suburbs, strangely enough, don't like it. Oh, it's untenable. It's this. It's that. Let's let's just remember that what they're going through is about 6 or 7% of the kind of nonsense that all sorts of people along the border in Texas and Arizona are going through all the time, in California for that matter, too. And so because of that, these cities are even accelerating uh, in their own demise, in particular some places like this, Chicago a little bit. Chicago's new mayor is may be the poison pill for that city. He is even more progressive than Lori Lightfoot, and if possible, is dumber. I know that's hard to imagine since he seems to be capable of respiration and blinking, blinking his eyes, but I think he might be. And he certainly said some of the dumbest things I've ever heard in terms of economics and policing and just how things in the world actually work. Doesn't seem to understand any of them. And remember that race in Chicago uh, was between him and a guy that pretty much has head screwed on straight. And it was pretty close. And if uh, Randy Weingarten's teachers unions and a few others hadn't having to drug this Johnson dude across the finish line and just by the skin of his teeth. It probably would be a very different thing in Chicago right now. But as it is, same path as Lori Lightfoot, just a little more tilted downward, I think. But So what happens to these cities? What happens to places like this with these policies and this danger and the state of the economy? Well, the economy is going to kick in pretty soon and do the same thing to these cities that has happened to some of the ones that we already know are pretty underwater. Uh, Baltimore has been going in that direction for a while. Detroit's been there, still there. Uh, you know, it has a, for a while it had the same population after everybody had fled it that it had in like 1920. So what about these other cities? What's the, what's the danger? And we're talking about the city centers in a lot of ways. And we all know, just, it's just, I know it's anecdotal, but you see enough of it to know that there's truth to it, that crime in these cities is terrible. And not just San Francisco, where it wasn't, it's left just regular shoplifting now to where they're just essentially organized crime shoplifting. Come in and just empty a store out, disappear, sell that stuff to other people. Heck, a lot of it shows up on some of these auction sites on the internet. I mean, you know, it's become a, you know, it's a cottage industry, as it were. You know, it's a, it's, you know, these are just essentially entrepreneurial types. You know, this is a small business. It just happens to be shoplifting. And, of course, eventually, in some instances, robbery. And a little carjacking thrown in just for kind of seasoning, I guess. 
So you're not feeling particularly safe in these cities. But beyond that, without foot traffic, without people wanting to go into these cities and wander around, uh, the value of the real estate, the commercial real estate in those areas, plummets, right? I mean, if you own a building that you're trying to get people to open a business in or offices or things like that, well, what's going on, man? I mean, you know, people want to come down there? No. And, of course, we sent everybody home uh, under the pandemic to work from home, and now many of them refuse to come back. Some of them don't want to come back to work because they're just as soon eat cereal on the couch, watch TV, and buy a mouse jiggler so it looks like their uh, computer is working while they're, if their boss checks on them. But some people just don't want to come back in because they don't like coming back into the city. It's become sort of a, an escape from New York kind of thing, except that it's not just New York they're trying to escape from. Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, Denver isn't too far behind, I don't think. And so what's what's a body to do here? Well, I think you need to watch a few things, and one of them is, of course, this commercial real estate thing. There's a couple articles out there I've been reading about this, that the ingredients are similar to here that was going on in 2008, 2010, which is that people are tightening up their lending, and so it's going to get harder and harder for people to you know be able to build things and or even borrow money to start businesses and move into things. The other thing is is that since this downtime real estate is not very desirable, you're seeing some really big changes in terms of of what's going on. I have an article here on New York Post they pointed out that in San Francisco, which by the way uh, is running a two hundred ninety million dollar deficit, way to go, guys, in terms of their spending, and you know something like. Uh, Looks to me like almost a third of their budget comes from property taxes. Well, property taxes, of course, are tied to what the value of the land is. The value of the land is based on what it's selling for. I'll be curious to see if they start monkeying around with that calculation here pretty soon to get more money out of people. But right now, that's how it's going. And they point out in this article, it was a New York Post article, in 2020, the asking price for one of these newly built office towers downtown in San Francisco uh, they were trying to get $250 million. This year, the property finally sold for $60 million. That's 75% off its asking price. Even if they were a little optimistic, that's a lot. And New York City, as they point out, I'm looking at the article here, uh, isn't looking much better, they say. Its budget is $107 billion. Think about that. New York City's budget is $107 billion, and $35 billion of that comes from property taxes. And right now, that city is running a deficit of about $1.3 billion. How do these guys bounce back from that? People are leaving those cities at a remarkable rate. So new people are not coming in. Now, the people, well, that's not fair. New people are coming in. They don't have any jobs, and they don't own any property, and they're there because there's a very hefty social safety net that is not just limited to citizens or apparently veterans or anything like that. Show up here, next day, boom, you're bouncing around on the safety net, and they don't have the money, and they're ruining their downtowns, and they are losing property tax revenue as well as citizens out of them. So what happens then? Well, the cities get hollowed out, don't they? 
the central business districts start to disappear and become sort of empty. And then when things are empty, what happens? They become relics. They become places for people to camp, to hide out, to uh, do drugs. They become lawless areas. And remember this with Detroit. Remember there were parts of Detroit that police services and ambulances wouldn't even go into unless they were specifically called. And then they weren't too crazy about it. And for a long time in Detroit, entire sections of the city, the majority of the streetlights didn't even work. Because nobody wanted to go in and fix them, and they didn't have any money to do it. And in the meantime, they kept trying to raise taxes on the few people that were there until they left. There is a priming the pump piece that these guys on the left always miss. And I have talked about this before, is that in order to get things moving, sometimes you have to take your foot off business and entrepreneurs' throats. Stop strangling them for money, and they might actually start a business that will generate money, and in the end, you'll get more than you were getting when you were trying to, like, choke it out of them. Because eventually they're going to leave because they don't like being choked and get nothing for it. It's an old lesson. It's all. It go, It's very old. It's older than our country. It's older than other countries. It's, it goes back to when there weren't countries, there were empires and kingdoms. It all works the same way. If you overtax, people underproduce. And when they underproduce, your revenues fall. Modern day, we can go back to the Laffer curve. Art Laffer's curve, it's been shown many times to be correct. He'll be happy to tell people that it's not his curve. He just had studied it like many people had before, which is just the relationship between taxation and revenue. And to find that there is a sweet spot with the percentage of revenue that you can tax before people's productivity starts going down. And then you keep cranking up the taxation to make up the difference because you're losing it. Then you start losing more and more revenue because productivity goes down faster and faster. And he showed this simply by naming it the curve and making it simpler to see. But it's it's an old story. And the left cannot bring themselves to cut loose of any money, even for a little while, if it's going to prime the pump, if it's going to encourage people to build things. Now, strangely enough, a lot of the pinhead variety of city council and, you know, local officials especially, and there's, of course, plenty of them uh, wearing tiny little hats on their pointy little heads in federal government are perfectly willing to spend good money on projects that have not a prayer of ever reimbursing their expenses, much less, much less moving forward and, and becoming productive. It's a strange situation. We're going to pour money into technology that doesn't work in terms of solar panels, storage, and things like this at a, an alarming rate. Now, when it gets to be effective, when the science catches up with these kinds of things so that they actually are cost beneficial, that's fine. And you know what will happen? People will adopt them. Industries and technologies that cannot exist without subsidized government assistance aren't viable. They're not businesses. They're government programs by another name. 
if I can't maintain a solar business, for instance, without massive government subsidies for people buying my product, that usually means that your product standing alone isn't seen as a good investment by the populace. It's only a good investment if someone else is paying for part of it through tax exemptions or whatever the case may be. If you have a product that actually, over the long run, is cheaper or more convenient or whatever else it takes to sell something, people will buy it and not need a government subsidy. And there's lots of things that aren't even that much more useful. People buy products all the time for perceived value. You know, the the luxury brands and so forth. Uh, does a person's Tiffany watch keep better time than a good solid old Timex watch? You know, the kind they used to tie to the propeller of a, you know, like a motorboat and <laughs> it keeps on ticking. If you watch any of those old commercials, uh, no, but people will pay a lot more for it because it has a prestige value. So it's perceived. So it doesn't even have to work better. It just has to work enough to have some utility. So things that won't survive without governmental funding really don't present enough utility for people who want to spend their hard-earned money for them. So right away, that's a signal to you about what's really going on. And unfortunately, if you recognize that and bring that up to people, they say, oh, that you're against it, or you're anti-science. I love that. You don't love the science. Uh, which science? The climate science that is really not a science either? Uh, what are you talking about? Well, they act like that, well, you know, you don't... You don't believe in the science. I believe in the science of solar energy. I believe in the science of tidal generators. I believe in the science of of advancing the way we generate power by nuclear, which we really need to be doing. Uh, and But the problem is, is that when you keep pushing some of these technologies ahead of what they're able to do effectively and in a cost-effective way, you're just actually hurting them in the long run because – People spend money on them, and even if they're subsidized, they don't work right, they don't do as advertised, it becomes a problem, and it and it sours people on technology. Whereas if the technology is out there and they see it working and it does things for them, then they'll buy it. And you can tell it, for instance, with solar, there's a lot of people out there, and a lot of you folks might be some of them, that have solar panels on their gates to run an automatic gate. If they maybe have a cabin up someplace, have some solar panels in there to charge batteries while they're not there for some lighting and so forth because they're off the grid. Uh, maybe they use it to use some heat so that when they have a shower out there that uh, it's not cold. <laughs> you know, things like that. It works well for things like that. Heating and cooling an entire house off this kind of energy, extremely difficult and really expensive if you look at you know what you get out of it to some extent. Some of the solar farms people have been encouraged to have are having trouble hooking into the grid anyway. They are encouraging things that aren't ready to be integrated. It it messes with the science. Some good science out there. There's some good technology. Solar panels today are much better than they were 15 years ago. And they're going to be improving all the time. But if you're trying to force people into them or encourage people into them where they really don't think they're as great as they were advertised for the purpose that they're being used and helping that technology. We have great materials right now that satisfy all those things for heating and cooling, right? We call it petrochemicals. And they can be made very clean, they're very plentiful, and they're cheap. And we should be using them while we're developing other technologies. 
There's nothing like, no one's saying that you should stay in the same place. I'm, no one was saying we should have stayed where we were when people were burning whale oil to power their lamps on the eastern seaboard. Well, let's get the whale oil. We don't need to look at anything else. I know that, that Rockefeller guy out there, you know, that oil out of the ground. Yeah, we don't we get whales. No, no one is saying that. We're just simply saying that let's keep the technology going until it catches up with what we're trying to use it for. So when you look at these cities and these problems that these places are starting to have, it's because everything is being pushed. Uh, we're pushing multiculturalism, we're co- diversity, all these kinds of things that nobody really wants except a few people. But the few people that really want it, for the most part, seem to be a control of media and entertainment and have a whole lot of money that they feel guilty about, and so they throw towards causes. But it doesn't make it work. If something doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if you're trying to raise the standard of something by putting a lot of money and time and coercion into it, and it's in a system that that behavior is actually harming the system, you're looking for trouble. And by that, of course, I mean the military. The military, as we've said, has become quite a target for all of this policy changes because it dawned on the left a few years ago that you could make the military do things by government fiat without having to have the representative government involved. If you have the executive in control, the commander-in-chief, as it were, you can just have the military do all sorts of things and none of those pesky, you know, recalcitrant conservatives in Congress can have a whole lot of say about it. So you can spend all of your time with with having pregnant flight suits and diversity training and drag queens trying to get people into the Navy and all that just great stuff, and then lowering standards because nobody wants to go into it when they see this stuff because that's not what they think about when they think of the military, and trying to drag more people into it that wouldn't qualify before. Uh, all these crazy things they're doing, they realized they can do them, without asking anybody if the president is on their side or if he is so befuddled and confused that he doesn't know which side he's standing on, much less which way he's facing. And so they managed to get that. And when it start, all these ideas start creeping into this, which is essentially almost an economic idea that you have to be able to utilize things in their bet to their best purpose, and that includes manpower and everything else, society's looking for a lot of trouble. So we're getting hollowed out here, but we see the problem. Just have to address it. See you next week.